Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, where change agents in social sectors, business, community, and faith meet at the intersection of belonging and gifts and imagination. I'm your host, Troy Bronsink, from The Hive in Cincinnati, Ohio. What began as a friendship between Walter Brueggemann, Peter Block, and John McKnight has grown into a fellowship program, 12 weeks where 30 fellows from around the world work together on their various experiments of imagination. And this season is focusing on the work of these fellows and the advisors in the program. Today's episode is with Dr. Adam Clark, Associate Professor for Theology at Xavier University. His focus in black theology and practicing a counter story really meets up well with and challenges some of the presuppositions that this podcast has been working with already. He spoke with fellows during the second on-site gathering, exploring the vision of Martin Luther King's beloved community both in its contemplative aspects as well as the dangerous economic and political consequences of his work. Beyond the antagonisms and divisions, there's a hidden wholeness that connects us all together. And I think that any effective idea of neighborliness has to maintain that kind of spiritual vision, that kind of groundedness. We have to have a new understanding of our humanity that there's an interconnected and interrelatedness to all of us. We begin as Adam shares about the recent passing of his mentor, black liberation theologian, Dr. James Cohn. My heart is heavy right now. I need to kind of just get this off my chest. Um, I just came back from a funeral of James Cohn, who's the father of black liberation theology and my mentor, my beloved teacher, and he just passed um, last week. Um, So my heart is really in mourning. So if I tend to space off or something like that, you'll you'll understand what's going on. It's just a, it's a grieving process. Um, But I wanted to to talk to you today about kind of the call to neighborliness. And when we think about neighborliness, there's a I think of neighborliness in multi-dimensional ways. On the one hand, there's a social, I guess political dimension of neighborliness in terms of the politics and the social makeup of neighborliness. There's the economic arrangements that fosters neighborliness. But there's also another dimension. One could call it spiritual, let's, let's, non-physical, imaginative dimension, but it it gets to the makeup of what we are as human beings, right? And that's kind of what I want to kind of lead with, is looking at that kind of uh, another dimension of what it means to foster neighborliness. And I've been thinking through, I'm a theologian here at Xavier University, located in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I've been working with this Um, thinker, Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk, um, passed in the 1960s, I believe, and he had a concept which he referred to as hidden wholeness. And hidden wholeness, and I think this is essential to to, to a vision of neighborliness, Um, beyond the antagonisms and divisions there's a hidden wholeness that connects us all together. And I think that any effective idea of neighborliness 
has to maintain that kind of spiritual vision, that kind of groundedness. We have to have a new understanding of our humanity, that there's an interconnected and interrelatedness to all of us. And I know that's hard to hold because when we look at the news and all the kind of strife and the conflict and the antagonisms, it's hard to really claim the interconnectedness. But I think neighborliness to really be effectively practice, we have to really do that maybe in spite of what we see. Sometimes not because of what we see, but in spite of what we see. We have to maintain that kind of as an organizing framework. And when I think of the greatest framing of neighborness in our country's history, I think of Martin Luther King Jr., who we celebrate this year because there's been 50 years since the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, when I met Martin Luther King Jr., mentioned Martin Luther King Jr., most people think of race alone. And race was part of what he tried to do. But he also was equally concerned about our economic arrangements to one another and militarism as well. So if you want to get a comprehensive idea of the life of Martin Luther King Jr., it's race, poverty or economics, and militarism. Yeah. But the public memory is so focused on race, many of what he tried to do, many of the things he tried to do in terms of economics remains out of public consciousness, out of public memory, right? Now, do, does anybody remember, besides Pastor Lynch, uh, you know, when King was assassinated in 1968, what was he, his on, what was he on his way doing? You cheat too, I don't want you here talking. Garbage workers. garbage workers, right? He was with the garbage worker in solidarity. He was working toward the poor people's campaign, right? That's what he was doing. This was jobs and justice. And it was really trying to call for, and they had all types of ideas about a guaranteed income. Um, um, uh, there, there's, there is talk about reparations. There's just talk about just a new economic arrangement. And when I talk about re economic right, there's, there's two ways to really think about um, alternative economics or how it's accomplished. One, through evolution. We can kind of hope, like what most religious and civic and nonprofit organizations and even self-improvement groups do, they're trying to work for people, a, a change in consciousness through people evolving to the place of neighborless or relational humanity, right? There's evolution, hoping that people evolve. There's also, and that's one way, there's also coercion. And when I say coercion, I don't mean like kind of like taking somebody and forcing them, but coercion through political coercion, trying to encourage good behavior through politics, through economic structures, you know, can be forced through military, but it's either evolu evo people evolve toward new forms of arrangements or you get coerced. And in human history, you, you, you probably need a little of both, right? You need some people who are going to change the actual consciousness, and also you need structures that are going to actually change 
social behavior in order to get to where you get to. You know, groups like this tend to be focused more on, we're gonna help people evolve toward thinking this way, right? Group, other groups put pressure on city, local, state governments to try to force policies that encourage that type of behavior, right? And you probably need a little of both. And King believed that. And the great framing story that King um, used out front was what he referred to as beloved community, right? Most people associate King purely with racial integration. And that's an, you know, an important aspect of his legacy. But it wasn't exclusively that. He was really driven by a deeper vision of beloved community where all of human beings and maybe human life itself is formed in bonds of nurture, care, and love, which we refer to here as neighborliness, right? Neighborliness isn't just proximity to others, right? It's actually about how we relate to others, right? So, with that as a framing story, um, at Xavier, I teach a course, or I have taught a course on Martin Luther King Jr., and I really try to talk about King in three aspects. I talk about the popular King, which is mostly the public memory of King, which you see in most holiday and high school celebrations. Then I talk about the historical King, who King was in history as a person. And that's really what we do through text and his autobiography and his writings. And then I talk about what I refer to as the living king. And what I mean by the living king, people have talked to, to take the spirit and name of king and try to do things in his name. Right? And I think a lot of what we see, especially with most kind of progressive movements and some movements of consciousness, have been the living king. They've taken the spirit of love, of nonviolence, of care, of compassion, and try to apply it to different issues. So during the civil rights movement, there were a number of people who, t who used it as a fund for spiritual resources for their own issues that were confronting their lives, for example, Next to the civil rights movement, you had the labor movement, you had the feminist movement, you had the gay and lesbian movement, you had later the ecological movement. These were all kind of people who, who started to work on those issues. Many of them were influenced by the work of Martin Luther King Jr. Right? So that's one thing in terms of, and I see this, the common good, as the living king. Right? We're using the language of neighborliness King used the language of community, right? How do we shape communities? Or what do you, you know, both at the kind of local level and what he would say is that nations should be national communities, right? And there's a difference between a community and an association, right? A community is an understanding of, of, of a relational interdependence between one another or what we're calling neighborliness. An association is a group of individuals that may not have bonds, but are guided by more self-interest. Religion at its best tries to root people in something bigger than themselves. So many of the people who were 
part of it, it let me not say religion, let me say wisdom traditions, okay? So I won't be too theistic here. But people who are grounded by wisdom traditions usually have a narrative that helps them transcend themselves because we all have a tendency to go back to our own self-centeredness. And we need a bigger vision. And that vision should be very edifying because if we don't have that vision, when we talk about neighborliness, we'll talk about it based on interest-based. So does my interest connect with your interest? But when we have a vision that helps ground us in something bigger than ourselves, right, we enter into a mythos that connects us on a grander scale so that we can, make, we can access not just um, where we are, but what do we have to give up in order to live into that vision? Right? Because most of us, if we're going to really achieve this in any kind of substantive way, there are things we're going to have to give up in our lives. There are tendencies, there are attitudes, there are orientations that we'll have to give up. So that's one in terms of what beloved community as a framing story. And I want to kind of lift that up um, as a kind of vision of neighborliness. So sitting in the room of the 30 common good fellows and advisors and other folks from the Cincinnati area, Dr. Adam Clark continues to unpack this uh, image of Dr. King and the beloved community. In King's sermon in 1959, the Sermon on Gandhi, he describes this uh, um, deep connection between nonviolence and a vision for beloved community. He writes, the aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community so that when the battle's over, a new relationship comes into being between the oppressed and the oppressor. He continues, the way of acquiescence leads to moral and spiritual suicide. And the way of violence leads to bitterness and the survival, brutality and the destroyers. But the way of nonviolence leads to redemption and the creation of the beloved community. We continue now with Adam discussing the danger that's inherent to Dr. King's message. There are two dimensions of king. One is what I refer to as a safe king, and then there's the dangerous king. Um, the safe king is what made him palatable to the larger American public. I call it the domesticated king, or Cornel West refers to it as a Santa Clausification of king. You know, a gift for every ch child, right? Just giving out gifts. But if that were the case, right, no one kills Santa Claus. King didn't die of natural causes. He was murdered, right? And before he was murdered, his house was bombed. He was stabbed, got death threats every day. So to me, a vision of neighborliness isn't just a kind of being nice, but it's actually a very dangerous, a radical vision, right? If we take this seriously, right? And when I look at King's public life was 12 years. And it started in 1956. And what most people kind of you know, ended is 1963 when he gave the dream speech. And that's what most people know, the I have a dream. But King's vision 
life didn't just end in 1963, he lived to 1968. And that's the part that's missing from public consciousness, the 1963 to 1968. And incidentally, that's when he started taking economics more seriously. Right? He was more talking about race from 1956 because he was fighting against racial segregation. It wasn't until 1964 that he started to say that this race thing is deeply related to economics. And he found that through going through Chicago and finding what urban poverty is. Right? So he started seeing structures that force us to not be together. Right? So he saw economic force, and then later you had the Vietnam War, and he started seeing that people are taking resources that should go to fighting poverty and putting them in a military machine. So you're not being a good steward of resources. And that's one of the you know, major arguments that he had against the United States turning away from its purpose of being a model community and really just going toward its own um, um, instincts toward empire. But in 19, that idea of from 1963 to 1968 was a radicalization. So you'll hear King talk more about that America is the most violent nation on the earth. And America is on the wrong side of history. And that most whites are unconscious racists, right? He talked about that, that there are so many studies on what to do with the Negro that no one interrogates whiteness, or what we'll call white supremacy, right? And he thought whiteness was a barrier, or white supremacy was a barrier to neighborliness. James Cone based his whole theological career on how to uproot white supremacy and trying to bring us into larger forms of genuine human community, right? So one of the things when we talk about racism or gender oppression or economic is that those are barriers to neighborliness, right? And we all have a call to actually confront that as equally as we do economics, because we can't truly see ourselves as brothers and sisters, right? If we're trapped in these certain structures of consciousness that doesn't allow us to see the humanity of others. Abraham Joshua Heschel, he talked about racism as an eye disease, because you're unable to see the image of God in the other. So King's vision in, the, in that kind of idea, in that um, space between 1963 and 1968 was a, a, a radical form of community, bottomed by a critique of racism, a critique of economic relations, and a critique of um, military or violence. And he was really struggling with how do you do this? And he was trying to struggle at a national and global level and trying to use that to critique both the Democratic and the Republican Party. So he was a third rail thinker. And I don't know if you, any of you come from New York City or Chicago or any place where you have trains, you know what the third rail is, right? You have the left uh, trail, you have the right, and then you have the third trail, which is the engine where the energy comes that moves the train. And he saw himself as a third rail thinker that moves the train, and he thought that these type of movements for community have to be a third rail. 
They shouldn't be subsumed by the Democrat or the Republican Party. They should be independent, right? King never really endorsed any type of candidate. He saw himself as being outside of that and being someone that influenced, kind of like a gadfly that would stick both parties. So I know Peter really talked, excuse me, not Peter, Walter uses Exodus as a story to really talk about the alternative consciousness and how to really form other things from the Exodus mythos. What I want to lift up is the King movement as another way of thinking about an alternative consciousness that's in our contemporary history, not just in our ancient history, and how community was formed by looking at those type of structures of consciousness that emerged from the radical edge of the civil rights movement. So King tried to do it at both a national and local level and left a narrative and models that I think can be useful for us in the way we try to think and organize ourselves. As the conversation continues, Adam invites everyone to consider three questions. And so we'll end today's episode asking you to do the same. What is the vision of neighborliness that seeks to emerge in and through me? What is the vision of neighborliness that seeks to emerge in and through me? Are you grasped by that vision? These are kind of sub-questions. How do you commune with that vision? That's question number one. Number two, what quality has to emerge, unfold, or take place for this vision to become manifest? What quality has to emerge, unfold, or take place for this vision to become manifest? That's number two. And number three, what must I release to manifest this vision? What must I release or stop doing to manifest that, this vision? So those as at least pedagogical questions try to, try to, tries to take it from kind of the, the, the medical or the kind of grand story and then tries to relate it to you personally, challenge you personally. What do you personally have to do to commune with that vision? What do you have to develop to maybe be a better representative of that vision? And what do you have to release? This has been the Common Good Podcast, conversations at the intersection of place and belonging and remembering. You can learn more about the works of Peter, John, and Walter, as well as Adam Clark's work and the Common Good Fellowship at commongood.cc. Common Good is a collaborative production of The Hive, a center for contemplation, art, and action, and common change, eliminating personal economic isolation. We're produced by myself, Troy Bronsink, and Joey Taylor. Music is written and produced by Jeff Gorman. So if you haven't figured out yet, The Common Good is this group of friends, and sometimes we ask each other to kind of pitch in in different ways, and so Adam's conversation came in kind of an ad hoc way, and you got to be careful what you ask of friends. You ever agree to something because you like somebody and then forget what you agree to? Uh, Okay.